Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back to the Three Technique, a college football podcast at the intersection of the X's and O's and the Jimmy's and the Joe's. Pac-12 North preview time, gentlemen. I'm Mitch Mason along with Trey Reeves and Garrett Turney. We're so excited to be back with you guys. Uh, Just as we continue to say every single episode, thank you guys for the support. The uh, viewership, the listenership continues to grow. Trey, we had a lot of interaction on one of your many fantastic graphics that you put out on our Twitter account for the Big 12 standings predictions. It's been a lot of fun to get to know, you know, people from all corners of of the country with all kinds of different team associations and and their projections where they agree with us, where they disagree with us. It, it's been a blast. Yeah, I absolutely love interacting with you guys on social just be warned, though, if you call us out for our predictions, I will ask you to make one of your own. Shout out Julia, who really disagreed with us on our Mountaineers takes on uh, Twitter. And you know what? To her credit, she came back and gave us her actual prediction for the Mountaineers, which I think was like eight and four. So, yep. you know, we can disagree. I obviously disagree on that record prediction, but shout out to you, Julia, for taking that burden on and actually providing a projection because I will ask you for it on Twitter if you call us out. So be prepared to defend your uh, attack of our takes. That's right. And you know what? I, I tweeted this back to her. I have no problem retweeting this, admitting if we're absolutely. wrong. We absolutely. To, yeah, if we get to the end of the season and we weren't even close, hey, we'll own up to it. We're not going to be a podcast that always tries to claim that we're right and always you know tries to hide behind the correct takes it's not the way that college football works that's not the way that reporting works um, ever even though numerous national types will will try and make that seem the way it is but uh, that's just not realistic so anyway uh, so glad to have you guys interacting with us again if you have not followed us on instagram or twitter at three tech pod you can also write into the show three tech pod at gmail.com uh just a couple quick shout outs to folks in miami florida that are listening i tell you what we've interacted with some some canes supporters some Knowles supporters uh one of them who called us uninformed for our take on their quarterback situation i think we might have uh, leaned into that hashtag team uninformed and uh (laughs) we did let them know that uh when when brock glenn was projected to go to florida state and they were celebrating a, a quarterback decommit because brock was Definitely coming to the Garnett and Gold. 
Uh, we were very quick to remind them that Florida State has a bad habit of not securing crystal ball pred- uh, predicted recruits. And sure enough, I think what yesterday, Brock Glenn committed to Ohio State. So listen, I'm on the Knowles bandwagon, as I've tweeted multiple times. But if you come at me on Twitter and call me uninformed, and then you're wrong about it, uh, I will bring that back up. I'm not going to start something, but I certainly will finish it. Trey, uh, Mitch Trey, keeps the receipts, y'all. He does not back <laughs> off. He's that guy that is he has the drawer of receipts in the kitchen. So maybe that one purchase of a, a, a bandsaw from Home Depot from 2017 that he might need to return one day. He's, he's, he's going to get you. Well, and as Garrett knows, Garrett can speak to this. I, like I said, I'm not looking to start something, but you know, like I said, if, if you come at me with a take and then you are a hundred percent incorrect, I, listen, I have no no problem defending defending my honor here. Garrett will do it as well. Uh, Garrett, keeper of the takes, is always <laughs> raring to go uh, in the social media battlefield. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're going to go out there, put yourself out there online, I respect that. I love the fact that people are going to talk about this. I think it just makes the whole thing more fun. Uh, but don't try to backtrack off of stuff and then say, no, you didn't understand the context. Like, you know, yeah. I, I wasn't saying that. No, no, that's exactly what you said. We have the screenshot of what you said. If we're going to post a <laughs> screenshot and then you say something else, I don't know. That's a little suspect to me. And I'm fine with you trying to backtrack on it. It's just going to make you look kind of dumb, man. So I don't know. I- that's fine. I guess yeah, I'm. I guess I'm more passive aggressive than you guys because my whole bit now is what's your record prediction? I'm just gonna yeah. throw that little line out there, and so far only one person has taken me up on it. But well, if, it's funny. If you have me. a take, if you have a take, back it up. That's that's yeah. my whole thing, right? Like don't don't just disparage somebody else without presenting your case. I'll tell you what, there was a lot of hot takes flying around this weekend. Obviously, the last. Uh, active recruiting period uh, before the the dead period that that runs now from fall camp to the beginning of the season. A lot of commits going around across the country. Texas A&M securing a couple uh, this week. Texas uh, trying to reinstall some of that momentum. USC's nervous. Ohio State lost a kid. Florida seems to be on the rise. So anyway, I'm sure we'll have time. Oklahoma as well. Oklahoma's doing cleaning up. no, no, no. Absolutely. Don't commit to Oklahoma. Do not commit. to. I'm, I heard that from their head coach. He said, do not commit. You shouldn't do. I, I don't get it personally as a strategy, but if he knows what he's doing, go for it, Brent. He, he did. He did say those words in in, in a little bit different context, but I, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time, certainly as, as we get further into the season and kind of news segments to cover that before we stray too far. Today's episode, as I mentioned off the top about the Pac-12 specifically the North Division. And, you know, Trey, as you pointed out, reminded us as we got ready to hit record, Pac-12 no longer abiding by those divisions. It will be the two best teams that play in the Pac-12 championship game, even though they are divided uh, for one more year into a North and into a South Division. As as we get into this, and I'll lead off with California in a second, but I, I want to hear from both of you guys First of all, do you like that that they're moving to a no divisions model, that that championship game will be truly number one against number two? And then what do we think is the overall health of the conference this year on the field? Not talking media rights, not talking all of that hubbub off, but on the field, what do we think the state of competition will be on the West Coast? I think you're going to see the Pac-12 kind of go two different directions. 
I think you're going to see some teams that are going to be very, very good this year. And there's going to be a few teams that are just abysmal and can't beat, you know, the the lowest tier guys on their schedule. They're going to lose some really bad out of conference games. Um, I mean, look, that's it's an interesting uh, layout this year in the Pac-12. I think, you know, if, if you're looking at it from, you know, oh, like, is this going to be a fun conference to watch? Yeah, I think there's going to be some fun games to watch. But I also think you're going to just see a whole lot of blowouts in those sort of top tier. You know, you get into the Utahs, USC's versus maybe some of the, you know, Arizona State's or Colorado's, some of those teams. I think there's going to be a wide disparity of talent. But it will make for some great matchups on both the top end and the bottom end. Yeah, I love I absolutely love that they led the way in abolishing divisions for the conference championship game. I think especially for the Pac-12, that is a brilliant move. It, that game has literally just kind of been an afterthought the past few years because there hasn't been that top-ranked team that you have to tune in to. You think about the ACC, for example, even though it's usually Clemson beating up on an also-ran for obviously last year was different, but in years past, it's been Clemson versus, you know, whoever you have Clemson, you have that brand to tune into. There just hasn't been that must see TV brand in the PAC 12, but having two teams that will probably be top 15, I'm guessing by the end of the year, if you just kind of map it out that way, that naturally is going to grab more eyeballs. That's naturally going to grab more attention for a conference that, really really needs it i don't i still don't think we have that dominant team that's going to make a run to the playoff i know we've talked about that ad nauseum with utah already and we'll get into that on the next episode as well but yeah i I don't know that there's that necessarily dominant team in this league but that fight for the championship is still going to be really entertaining there's gonna be a lot of fun matchups to watch in a late night time slot too so when there's not a lot else going on Exactly, exactly. Gotta love Pac-12 after dark. All right, well, fellas, let's jump into it. Uh, Pac-12 North on deck for this episode. We'll cover the South in the next one. Uh, Let's start off with California. The state of the program for the Golden Bears, very, very plain. Uh, And I hate to say that, but that's kind of Cal's MO. They're not a flashy team. They've they've had a couple of years where, you know, under, under Davis Webb, they were throwing the ball all over the lot. And that was a lot of fun to watch. Since then, though, they they haven't had a quarterback that's lit the world on fire, right? Chase Garbers was there for, I believe, four years. He's now left, so quarterback is going to be one of the positions they have to address. But the defense has been what Cal is primarily known for. Uh, overall, the team really kind of tends to fly under the radar. Some of that is because head coach Justin Wilcox is only 26 and 28 as the head man. But some of that is also just their style. They play very fundamental football. They're very defensively sound. Uh, the Bears do need to find more consistency on the offensive side of the ball to, to really move the needle and, and threaten for a bowl game, if we're being honest here, in 2022. Pac-12 North appears to be more receptive to a, a move upwards than in years past with Oregon, Washington, Washington State all with new first-year first new head coaches. So a lot of pieces moving around, a lot of cultures to be set in stone. This could be the year that Cal decides to, to take a big step forward, but we'll see. Offensively, key metric for success in 2022 will be just overall offensive efficiency. Last year, the Bears ranked 60th in yards per play. 
But that was actually a gigantic step forward. Uh, it was a much-needed improvement from the first four season when Wilcox's offense never finished inside the top 100. It was all breaks, no gas to coin a phrase <laughs> from the Cal Bears. And basically, if their defense wasn't holding you to like 17 points, 20 points, Cal wasn't winning football games. Uh, so a big step forward, but as, as you'll see, they lost so much production from, from next year. So what kind of consistency do they find there? That being said, they wasted a lot of drives last year. So even though the overall engine looked like it was humming a little bit more, a lot of wasted opportunities. They finished 96 in the country in points per game. Quarterback, they've got Jack Plummer, who's going to provide more stability after four years of Garbers, like I said. Wilcox and staff had to go portal diving for quarterbacks and settled on Plummer, believing that he fits what they want to do in terms of downfield passing and taking that next evolution in the offense. Explosive plays are an emphasis of the staff this year, which sounds like a, a no-duh focus, but at the same time, Cal has been in the basement when it comes to passes farther than 15 yards and explosive plays more than 20 yards down the field. So a, a lot of the time their drives last season in particular were just coming to a screeching halt because they couldn't move the chains. They didn't have the ability to draw up plays that extended the field, got beyond the yardage marker, and made teams worry about taking the top off that defense. Christopher Brooks left for BYU at the running back position in the offseason, and he takes his team leading 607 yards with him. It's likely going to be running back at uh, or by committee, I should say, at Berkeley with Damian Moore leading the way. He ran for six touchdowns last season, so they're hoping he takes the next step. Jaden Ott was the highest-rated member of the 2022 class, uh, this past season's recruiting class. He's going to certainly have the chance to earn an opportunity. They're, they're not entirely sure what his production is going to look like at the college level yet, as with all true freshmen, right? Biggest eyebrow raise on this offense is certainly at the wide receiver core. And this stat uh, kind of shook me. Six of their top seven receivers from last year are gone. Jeremiah Hunter is the safety blanket. He's the leading returner. He had all of 21 catches last year, so not quite Baylor bad as far as returning uh, production, but still, to, to lose six of top seven guys that are just familiar with the program who have seen on-field reps, that's kind of scary. Uh, but at the same time, new quarterback, maybe everybody kind of grows together. They've got a number of players who have been in the program for a long time, but literally have never seen the field or done anything of note. J. Michael Sturdivant is... Probably the guy that's leading for wide receiver two, considering his former four-star status. He's also six foot three, so some nice size on the outside. And then in the trenches, Cal brings back a relatively veteran group, although most of the guys are going to have to be cross-stitched together. Uh, they've all shuffled the deck as far as positions, tenures, so not a lot is decided up front either. Spencer Lovell came in from Arizona State. He's going to fight for one of those guard spots. So uh, a lot up in the air for the Cal offense. They are plugging and playing to the extreme with transfers, with freshmen coming in. So even though the focus is on a more vertical downfield passing threat, the fact that they don't have that offensive line solidified, the fact that they do not really know who their bell cow is going to be at running back, certainly cause for concern. Defensively, as I mentioned, that's been their strength. Uh, Wilcox is considered a defensive guru so much so that he was actually in the running for the Oregon job and reportedly before Dan Lanning took the job in Eugene 
Wilcox had to turn it down. He told Oregon no. He loves where he is at Berkeley. He loves the style of football that he plays, even though they're not winning a ton of games. They're really just fighting for bowl eligibility. He said he's committed to the culture there and committed to building something. So props to Wilcox for that. Um, they've got to replace a decent amount of production on that back end and, and leadership on the field. They lost a couple of team captains, especially outside linebacker Cam Goody and safety Elijah Hicks. You look in the trenches, they've got Brett Johnson back at three tech, roll credits. Uh, he had contributed in 2020, but lost all of 2021 to a car wreck that broke his hip. So it's been over a year since he's been back on the playing surface in a meaningful game. We'll have to wait and see what he can produce. Utah transfer Xavier Carlton and UCLA transfer Odua Isabor are joining the Bears as well. As a unit, the combination of size and speed makes them a unit to watch, no doubt. I mean, they're going to have to be certainly the strength of that team that is game planned for by opposing offensive coordinators. But again, just not a lot of past film, past experience to say, hey, this is what we're building on in 2022. Ton of talent, but what can they do with that? Linebackers could be a fun group to watch. They've got Peter Sermon at defensive coordinator. His son Jackson transferred in from Washington to play for his dad this season, which I've got the Washington preview at the end of this. I'll tell you what, the Huskies are going to miss Jackson Sermon in the middle of that defense. So a massive win for, for Cal there. Jackson had 147 tackles in 33 games played for the Huskies, and he joins uh, an overall linebacking unit that returns a wealth of experience. You look in the secondary, fifth-year safety Daniel Scott decided to come back for one more ride. He was the team last uh, team leader last year in tackles and could probably be one of the top safeties in the conference. So Cal's excited about him. The other safety spot, though, very much up for grabs, as is the second cornerback spot. And even the nickel isn't ironed out. Cal did not have a very productive spring ball, spring camp tenure as far as deciding starting positions. So the two deep, when it comes out here in a couple of weeks, is is going to be the first time that a lot of people, you know, fans and around the program will have had answers to a number of those questions. Um, the floor and ceiling, the over-under right now, uh, provided to us by Bet Online, not a sponsor, could be, is at five and a half. And I'll be honest, I ping-ponged to either side of this line the entire time I was doing research when I was coming up with my projection for them. Because we don't know what they have on offense, because it is so many plug-and-play guys, uh, and because that defense, especially in the secondary, has a couple of, of options that, that haven't solidified themselves, basically nobody's won the job yet, I'm going to take the under. I'm going to say Cal goes 5-7 and seven this year. Now, that being said, Golden Bears fans do not lose heart here. If Plummer and company can, can concoct a more efficient offense— Again, like I said, the Pac-12 is kind of wide open this year. At least it feels like it could be, certainly in the midfield, maybe not at the very top, but in the midfield to go 7-5, and five, to go 8-4, and four, to earn a nice little bowl, uh, bowl appearance, to go to the Holiday Bowl or, or, or something like that. I think it's very, very possible. So don't take my kind of disparagement to heart. It's just what I see from kind of the lack of a concurrent too deep and from all the research that I've done. That's what I feel most confident in going with. The danger zone for Cal. Tough little slate. Weeks four, five, they get a bye week, and then week seven. So 
home against Arizona, at Washington State, bye week, at Colorado. It's not the toughest part of their schedule from an opponent standpoint, but I think it's one that they have to capitalize on. So you've got to go beat the Wildcats at home. That is a must win. Going on the road to Wazoo, we don't, uh, you know, Trey, you've got the Wazoo preview coming up. Listen, the Cougars could go many different ways, right? And then Cal, Cal's probably going to be the absolute seller of the Pac-12. You got to win that one on the road too. Cal or Colorado has no offense to speak of. At least they didn't last year. A lot of questions on the offensive side of the ball this year. So to me, you got to find a way to go two and one to to reach bowl eligibility. Like I said, I've got them at five and seven. I've actually I'm kind of high on on Arizona, higher than maybe most. I think that Jed Fish has got that program at least trending in the right direction. So I've got them going one and two through that stretch. If they can switch that around. Bowl eligibility, seven, eight wins, certainly on the cards. But uh, there you go. Cal, Cal Golden Bears, a lot of questions. You're absolutely right to say this is something that I just kept coming back and doing research for this episode. This division is so wide open after probably, I mean, Garrett's going to talk about Oregon here in a little bit. I think we probably agree that they're the cream of the crop up north. But after that, if you told me, any combination of the other five teams i you could talk me into that right like it's so wide open and interesting thing about cal last year you talk about we've talked about nebraska a lot they were the other snake bitten team in close games they were zero and five in one possession games last year so losing to the likes of nevada tcu had the washington game probably they lose it in overtime at uh at the huskies they played close with Oregon. They lost at Arizona last year. Not something a lot of teams can say. Um, but other than other than the UCLA game, they were competitive in every single game, I would say. Yeah. And that's that makes them interesting. They have a defense that's going to keep them in games. I think that scheme-wise, even though they're replacing a lot of talent, they know what they're doing on the defensive side of the ball. So... Yeah, you could talk me into a bowl game for Cal really easily. They just need they need to not be snake bitten. But um they just kind of need a few things to bounce their way and get offense under control a little bit. Yeah, I feel like my biggest issue trying to break down Cal right now is, you know, I like to, you know, mostly try to break down teams that I've watched a little bit of and I try to go back and think Oh, who have I seen a little bit more of? Is there a moment from last season that really stuck out? And man, like I just Cal kind of for some of the reasons Mitch was breaking down, just not super fun to watch. You know, they're not very explosive on offense. They don't move the ball in big chunks. They don't score a whole lot of points. They play good defense, but it's not the kind of defense that you're going to, you know, turn the channel over. Kind of like how Georgia's last year, you know, you'd watch the game just to watch their defense be dominant. It's a good defense, but it's not that kind of a defense. And so, you know, for me, Man, I just have a really tough time kind of picking up the read on them. They have to be more explosive on offense, though. And losing that many receivers is not going to be easy uh, in, in that pursuit. But if they're going to focus on that, I mean, that could come with a little bit of a you know, sort of a double-edged sword there where they try to be more explosive and it ends up backfiring with a lot of turnovers or, you know, they get behind the chains because they're going for big chunk plays that are low percentage uh, completions or things like that. So, man, I just, you know, they got to be – a lot better on offense uh, to, to kind of come above that level. Now I do have them going six and six. I just don't see them having any of that potential to really go up and shock a better team. 
You know, I think they can handle some of the lower end teams. I think they can almost out talent some of those teams just on the defensive side of the ball. I just don't see how they go up and they grab a better team. Like I, I don't see how they go up and get Oregon, right? Even on their best day, how are they going to overcome the talent gap and the explosive gap? I, I just don't see it. They almost did last year, though. They only they, they only did lost by a touchdown yeah. last year. On Cal, Cal was in a number of games, and I think a credit to their defense. Like Trey, you mentioned the TCU game. That was one I remember in our our pick'em that we had last year. That I was from the moment you put that together saying Cal wins this game over TCU, mostly because I had some issues with with TCU, but Cal should have won that game. They were ahead at halftime in the third quarter. And then they blow the lead and, and end up losing by two. You know, they score 32 points in that game, which it's to me, it's hard to pin that on Garbers in the offense. I think Garbers threw for over 300 yards in that. So that one, not necessarily on the Cal offense, but their defense was, was good enough to keep them in games last year, but it wasn't good enough to then when the offense did have a bad day or an inefficient day, when they were failing to convert drives, your defense wasn't always going to go down pick you up, keep you right in that game, and allow you to, to muddy it up and win those low-score games. That's how they pull upsets, right? I mean, that's that's how we see a lot of teams pull upsets. That's how Stanford pulled the upset over over Oregon um, last year. So hope, hopefully Cal can get some of those pieces back in place defensively and then, like I said, completely new-look offense. So uh, certainly a team that I, I think I'm going to be paying attention to just because their culture – is is so entrenched in defense now if they can get the offense rolling they could be my one of my teams to to watch pop uh in 2022 all right so from cal over to certainly one of the front runners in the pac-12 north garrett you've got oregon under a brand new head coach yeah no and like you said this is a uh, oregon ducks program that's in a lot of transition first off i just kind of want to lead off by saying that here at you know three tech we're really sad about the tragic loss of Spencer Webb. Uh, wanted to kind of lead off by saying that. Wanted to get that sort of you know on the record first. Uh, obviously he passed recently. Um, I'm sure by this point most people have heard he passed recently, kind of in a freak accident. Um, he's definitely going to be missed. He was really important to that Oregon team and to that community. Um, and so you know with all the other transition they're going through right now and leadership and everything else, that's obviously a tough thing. Not more important than obviously the loss of life. So. Obviously, our prayers go out to them, to his team, his family, his friends, um, just really trying to, you know, give good wishes to those guys while they're struggling with the loss of Spencer. Um, but moving on to the football field, um, there are a lot of new faces for Nike's golden child. OK, this Oregon Doug brings in new head coach Dan Lanning. He's fresh off a championship season uh, with the Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, their former defensive coordinator, he saw his defense last year with Georgia produce not only elite draft talent, but also an all-time great defense that helped the Bulldogs ultimately cr- uh, claim their first crown in a long time uh, over Bama in that awesome national championship game last year. Uh, the Ducks are hoping to kind of capture some of that magic and pair it with a very, very good roster and to help them kind of rise back up to the top, reclaim that spot uh, at the top of the Pac-12. Uh, they're coming off of a fairly mediocre year, especially by their standards, and they're going to be looking to Lanning to improve off of a good but never quite elite run with Mario Cristobal, who left to go to Miami. Um, offensively, the Ducks scored 31.4 points per game last year. That made them 42 out of 130. Yeah, it's top half, but it's definitely not elite, uh, and that's an expectation that they're going to have to improve 
uh, in that category, um, as well as just across the offense. A lot of this had to do with inconsistent quarterback play out of Anthony Brown, but also they had a turnover margin that was negative 0.6. And I think that's a place where they could make a lot of improvement there. It's not a crazy margin, but they still were in the red. And when every other game you're losing your turnover margin, essentially, uh, that's that's not where you want to be. Um, and I think just finding a way to kind of take better care of the football um, and, and maybe force some more turnovers under that new system uh, with landing, I think that could really help them make some improvements on the offensive side of the ball as well. Uh, the big story in the Ducks on offense is going to be transfer quarterback Bo Nix from Auburn. Uh, this is just a few years removed, guys, after he beat the Ducks in Arlington. Um, so Nix is coming to Eugene, primed to take over that starting spot for the Ducks. Uh, I think he can best be described as wild. You know, every other week, you might be getting a Bo Nix who can beat the world, and you might be getting a Bo Nix who could single-handedly lose you the game through some sort of boneheaded decision-making. So, um, you know, I'm really high on the kid. I think he's really good, um, and I think he's going to be very good for Oregon. Um, He's a baller. I think he's going to help them improve on offense, uh, and he will be competing against a couple of inexperienced but talented young kids. He should ultimately win the job. Um, over Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield. But, um, you know, if he kind of turns into bad bow for a little bit where he's throwing a lot of picks and, you know, kind of going back to that inconsistency, the turnovers, again, like I said, being the issue, you could see him maybe getting swapped out at some point in the year. Um, what should help him be a little bit less erratic is his offensive line. They lost George Moore to eligibility, but then they were able to convince several key pieces to run it back for another year in the green and yellow and the black and the white and the silver and the gray and all other jersey combinations that they throw out there. Uh, They had guards Ryan Walk, TJ Bass come back to solidify the interior, as does offensive tackle uh, Malia Sala, Almeve Laulu. Hope I got it right. Yeah, it's a very good tackle. Um, You look at the film; it's very good. Um, This will help things hopefully get rolling for this group up front as they try to uh, sort of implement a new system in Landing's first year. Um, There's a lot of sort of technical changes that they're making as far as like where they're putting their hands. They're hitting a lot more central instead of going under the pad. So uh, hopefully that's a good improvement for them, and they can sort of get things going uh, in year one there. Uh, The backs should be talented, but there's still some clarity needed as far as who's going to play what role. They have Byron Cardwell. He got 61 carries last year, sort of filling in for injured starters. And he averaged 6.8 yards per carry, which should bode well for him to be the primary back. Uh, They're also bringing back Sean Dollars from a knee injury last year. Uh, He was turning heads prior to his injury, so hopefully he can kind of stay healthy, provide another option for them there. One of those two guys is going to have to step up and be the answer, uh, but there's not a lot of concern that they will be able to there. Uh, Pass catchers should be extremely dynamic, and they're going to carry a lot of the sort of uncertainty of this offense um, and, and sort of make things a lot better. Despite losing their top two targets last year, they bring back some young stars who are primed to take over. Uh, primarily it's going to be Chris Hudson. He's extremely flashy. He finished last year very well. He had six catches in the Alamo bowl. Um, he wasn't their primary target, but he still found ways to get open and, and make some good plays there. Um, they also have Troy Franklin. He was banged up last year, sort of as the season went along, but he was a talented kid and he's going to be stepping up to, uh, sort of increase his opportunities and, and do a little bit better there. They're also bringing in a couple of young tight ends. They have Terrence Ferguson and Maliki Mataveo. Um, they're both 6'6 and should just be massively long targets. 
uh, in the middle of the field, especially in the red zone. They should give him a lot of options to pass there and and hopefully convert some of those drives into more points. So lots of options for the Ducks on offense. I think the big theme for the Ducks offensively this year is just going to be, you know, a lot of question marks. You know, if they can start to figure out what is Bo Nix going to give you every week, who are our running backs going to be, what receivers are going to be our primaries. If they can start to fill some of those question marks, I think that this team could take off, you know, first couple games of the season, start to get things going. Uh, defensively, Landing's going to be putting his stamp on a very talented group in the hopes that they can improve on some very pedestrian units as of late. They finished 75th and 59th the last couple years in opponents' points per game. Um, that's going to need to improve. And under Landing, you got to think it would. Um, Lanning's also going to be getting some great tools that should be reminding him of some of the studs he just coached at Georgia. He's got Noah Sewell and Justin Flo. They're a couple of fantastic talents that you can just stick there on the defense, let them play every down, and let them kind of shine. You don't have to do a lot of good scheming to get them to succeed, but with Dan Lanning's scheme, he should be able to put those guys in position to make a lot of plays this year and turn some heads. Um, on the defensive line, they're losing Thibodeau to the draft, obviously. Uh, but they return a talented defensive end in Brandon Dolores, uh, uh, Dorless, actually. Sorry, I said that wrong. Um, he had a bit of a breakout year last year, had seven tackles for loss, two and a half sacks, sort of as the opposite guy to Thibodeau. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he performs as the primary pass rusher. Uh, he'll be getting more attention from other opposing offensive lines. And so you're going to have to kind of see how he makes that adjustment uh, to being the guy. Um, the big thing to watch in this front seven is just going to be, I think, how the supporting cast responds to Lanning's new system um, and allows some of those stars that I was talking about in that front seven to kind of shine and do their thing. Not a whole lot of guys that are proven, not a whole lot of guys that I think are are going to be world beaters, but a lot of guys who should be in a really good situation because of Lanning's scheme. Now, one group that I think is going to shine is going to be the DBs. They're bringing in transfer Christian Gonzalez from Colorado. He's going to pair with Dante Manning, who I think I saw was the highest DB commit they had ever brought in. Uh, he's going to get paired with Bennett Williams. Uh, and there's just kind of a lot of experience on this back end, a lot of talent on this back end. And I think that this is going to be really, really good for them in the past happy Pac-12 um, to kind of help them get over that hump um, and have a really good year one under Dan Lanning. Uh, their floor ceiling over under right now is at eight and a half. I think it's a really safe over with the Ducks. Uh, Ten and two, I think, is extremely likely. And they do have a possibility for like a long shot upset, you know, maybe to start the year with Georgia, maybe knocking off Utah late in the year. Um, you know, maybe, you know, if I squint, I could get them down to eight and four. But this should be a very good team. Uh, if we're looking at the danger zone for Oregon. If you're looking at week one, they go to Georgia. I know it's technically a neutral site game, but they play this game in Atlanta. So it is an away game for them, essentially. And then week three, they play BYU, which is a heck of a way to start out if you're a new coaching staff trying to get your feet. Uh, might have a little bit of baptism by fire there if they're not careful. And it could have them limping into conference play if they can't get things right from day one. Uh, Trey, I don't know about you. I've got Oregon starting uh, one and two in that stretch. And I think, I, I think you're going to see now I, I've also got Oregon finishing, I think nine and three. So not, not a championship level year, but still a very, very good year one for Dan Lanning. I think you're going to have a lot of separation in the men and the boys to start that season. That is as brutal an opening stretch. I think as there is in college football. They, so you're on the BYU bandwagon with, with me a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard it. not to be. All right. Well, we'll we'll talk about them in a later episode. This is not a <laughs> BYU pod, but yeah, I mean, yeah, one and one and two is very very real possibility. One and three, uh, Washington. That Washington State game is not going to be easy this year. I'll tell you guys why. On the road, into the show, on the road in Pullman, tough place to play. Um. After that, though, I think it does really smooth out for them. There's not really another game that they're probably more or less concerned. I mean, UCLA could be tough. I'm I'm a little higher on the Bruins than I think than the average uh, person. But, yeah, I mean, that, that middle is a good get-right area uh, for them. But, I mean, this, this was also a team that was had very legitimate playoff aspirations until – the week before Thanksgiving last year, um, knocked off Ohio State. It was cruising other than that blip against Stanford until they just got pummeled by Utah. Um, so, I mean, the talent's there. And the ceiling, I think, is winning the conference. And if things bounce the right way, if they get one of those, if they slip up against Georgia but win the rest – probably a college football playoff team if they're sitting at 11 and one or 12 and one with only a loss to Georgia. So big range of outcomes for them. It's going to hinge on good bow versus bad bow though. Uh, you, we, we've talked about it on this show before in our quarterback series, like Garrett, you mentioned it, Bo Bo Nix can win you a game. You're not supposed to win, but very easily lose you a game. You're not supposed to lose. So what do you get more often? And does he have a supporting cast around him that can pick him up when he's not good, Bo? That that's well, the big question for Oregon. And and similar to to what the Huskies face at the quarterback position, it's just so it it's such an indictment on I I don't know if it's the coaching staff, the recruiting, the the players themselves. Like some you got to find the the place to put some of the blame. Oregon has not developed a quarterback. Even under, you know, thinking under Cristobal with Justin Herbert, Herbert's flourishing in the NFL. We did not see the same Justin Herbert at Oregon that we're seeing uh, for the for the L.A. Chargers. And, and listen, Herbert dealt with injuries, especially late in his career, so he, he wasn't the full form of himself. But still, Oregon's been pulling in five-star quarterbacks. They even just got another one in Dante Moore to commit from from the state of Michigan, what, a week or so ago. So they've got all this five-star talent. They just haven't developed anybody at quarterback. Ty Thompson was supposed to be the next guy. Butterfield was supposed to be the big guy. And they can't even win the job right now from what we're hearing over Bo Nix that Auburn kind of ran out of town. Yeah, and that you're absolutely right. There's nothing really more to add. It's And that's going to be priority number one for Dan Lanning uh, in his time in Oregon. It's... Bonix, I think, is a really solid bridge the gap guy before they can start getting the guys that they've recruited in, like Dante Moore. But you're going to get the good and the bad with him. He There's a reason that he was in the transfer portal, like you said, and he's not leading Auburn to defending an SEC title or something like yeah. that. So. Well, one thing I'm hoping is, you know, for Bo at least, Auburn had such an atrocious offensive line last year. They're just miserable. This yeah. offensive line is going to be a lot better for the Ducks, so hopefully he won't be scrambling for his life where sometimes he makes plays and sometimes, you know, he makes you want to just scream. But so, you know, I, I'm thinking 
I'm thinking that there's a good chance that he plays a lot better this year, especially because I think his supporting cast will be better. Regardless of how the offense does, though, I think this defense is going to be really salty, especially in a conference where, you know, the offense is very one gear a lot of times in terms of just we're going to pass the ball, we're going to spread it around. I think they have the dogs on the backside to kind of, you know, go get guys, tackle guys in space, hit guys, and force pressure that's going to, you know, ultimately – you know, cause people to make mistakes. It's a pretty big drop off. I, I just think Oregon's kind of in a weird tier where they're probably the best in the North, but I don't think they're anywhere close enough to beating Georgia or Utah. I just don't think that they're there at all as a roster in their scheme. I just don't think that they're there. Yeah. Well, in that closing stretch for Oregon, home against Washington on the or home against Utah on the road against Oregon State. Trey, I'll let this be the segue into your Beavers preview. That's a really, really tricky last three games to conclude the season. I'll talk about Washington later on, but Oregon State, not a team that you want to be sleeping on, especially late in the year. Oregon State is plucky you, man. But yeah, we, we can segue we can segue that into the Oregon State preview because guys, last year was a beaver breakthrough. Um they went seven and five. They did lose their bowl game against Utah State and it had maybe the greatest tweet of all time when Oregon state was starting their stadium renovation and Utah state with an implosion and Utah state replied, wow, it was just a bowl game guys. Uh, but um, anyways, they, they went seven and five in the regular season. That was their first winning regular season since 2012. Um, and as a microcosm of that, they just feel more stable than they have at any point since probably the late two thousands. Like I said, they're getting $153 million stadium facelift. Jonathan Smith is just Mr. Beaver. And I love that he's in charge of the program. He was, don't clip that, but uh, he was uh, the guy who quarterbacked um, the team to uh, probably their best season ever. Um, a top four finish in 2000. He was the quarterback of that team. He looks like he's building something special. And he's not a guy that I think will leave for a different job when they're right on the cusp of that. Um, he took over a team that had won just seven games in three years when he arrived in 2018, and they took their lumps early. They had a couple of really ugly seasons. They didn't really get to play a lot in the COVID year as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, seven games in three years to winning seven last year in just a short turnaround. So, they're getting back in the direction of those golden years under Mike Riley and to take the step, the next step, their mantra just has to be finished strong. I think they uh, were two and four down the stretch last year. They started five and two. They beat USC. They beat Utah, but immediately after that Utah game, they dropped games to Cal and Colorado, both teams that missed the bowl last year in back-to-back weeks. They've got to do better. Um, they got to do better away from home as well. They were, um, six and one or uh yeah six and one six and oh at home and one and six away from Corvallis last year so just got to find that consistency got to find that way to finish games if they can do that I'm really excited about their chances this year speaking of chances uh Chance Nolan is coming back at quarterback and uh they haven't officially named him the starter yet I think that's more just a motivation tool, room management thing. They've got guys, you got to manage the transfer portal, right? I think that's just giving a lot of motivation coming into fall practices. With Chance Nolan, 
he's really solid. He ran the offense well. They didn't really ask him to throw a lot this past year. He only had more than 25 attempts just five times last year. They were one and four in those games when he had more than 25 attempts. Not really a great runner. He has his moments. He can definitely scramble and pick up a first down if he needs to. But really the main thing for him this year, cut down on the interceptions. If he can do that, he'll be solidly above average. And that's more than enough, I think, to get them to bowl eligibility. Um, BJ Baylor, he ran for 1,300 yards last year. He graduated. So they are going to have to figure out how to replace that production. They have two other guys uh, that averaged more than four carries a game last year and Deshaun Fenwick. And he's back for his fifth year. The guy they're really excited about, though, he really flashed in spring ball, is true freshman Damian Martinez. He's from right up the road in Louisville. Shout out Fighting Farmers. Um, really impressed the coaching staff during spring ball. They were raving about him in the preseason previews that I've been reading. Um, they also really like bringing in, uh, they've got a linebacker in Jack Coletto. He was also a former quarterback. They like to bring him in in special Wildcat uh, packages. Nine touchdowns last year, eight on the ground, one receiving. So he's a fun weapon that they can uh, plug in on offense as well. Last year's top receiver by production was Trevon Bradford. He had 632 yards and five touchdowns. So not game-breaking numbers. He's gone, so they do have to replace that production. Um, they need some combination of returners and transfers to step up. They've got guys like Treshawn Harrison, Tajon Lindsey, Anthony Gold. Um, I like the room. They do have some returning production coming back, but explosivity was a problem. They 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 need to, and part of that's going to fall on Chance Nolan, right? But they need to find more explosive production in the passing game to be more exciting on that side of the ball. Uh, Luke Musgrave is back at the tight end position. He's going to help that room as well. It's the biggest question mark, though. Finding receiving production, they are going to need to have some guys step up like a lot of teams we've talked about but the offensive line uh helping them out is going to be a really solid unit they're returning four starters from a group last year that was a finalist for the joe moore award they were surprisingly really really good on the offensive line last year so uh 247 sports put out an article not too long ago on the 20 teams that are actually comfortable with their offensive line and oregon state was on that list so they should be productive they should help spur if it's martinez if it's um more of a committee approach in the running back room i think the offensive line should give them a lot of boost in trying to get a really productive running game over on the defensive side of the ball really they just need to get more pressure on the quarterback they had just 20 sacks last year and that directly led to their pass defense really struggling they finished 92nd in pass yards per game given up. It wasn't a talent issue in the secondary, though. It was literally the guys are not getting home to the quarterback, and the quarterbacks just have four or five seconds every play to find an open receiver. Not going to work when you have talented receivers that can get open. They do run a throwback scheme with a 3-4, so it's really going to be on those outside linebackers uh, just making more plays. They've got a ton of size and athleticism. They, they didn't have last year. They brought in um, 6'5", 250-pound John McCartan. Uh, he actually didn't come in. He missed last year with a hamstring injury, so he's coming back. They were supposed to be their big pass rush guy last year. He'll be back. 6'2", 255-pound uh, Florida transfer Andrew Chatfield. Didn't play a ton with the Gators, but he definitely looks the part. Um, 
And they also have a 13 game starter from last year, Riley Sharp, uh, Ryan Frank, and 6'6, 253 pound uh, Corey Stover. They're all in the mix as that outside linebacker spot. Jack Coletto is also going to spend some more time on defense as well. He'll probably slot in more at the inside backer spot. They also have a lot of good production and that uh, inside spot at the 3 4 scheme. So, linebacker's a tough position to find talented guys so it's interesting that they're rolling with this 3-4 scheme um especially to place like oregon state like you see the big programs struggle to find competent linebacker play sometimes so finding four to put on the field could be tough i don't know but they've gotta gotta find a way to rush the passer better and and to your point oregon state is the only power five team since i think 2017 or 2018 to not recruit a four-star player in any of those classes so not only are they finding a lot of athletic and i mean from from the height and weight descriptions just massive human beings yeah but they're developing them they're not even highly acclaimed linebackers coming out of high school so it it is an interesting decision to go with that three four scheme but you know they look the part they fly around and you know like you said they're they're kind of sneaky sneaky talented Yeah, and credit to them, right? Because they, I mean, they are developing draft picks on the defensive side of the ball. They're not doing it by getting the most talented high school players. So that's a huge credit to that staff. But up front, Isaac Hodgins, uh, he's their best defensive lineman. He's still trying to get healthy after breaking his foot and missing all last year. So they're not 100, they're not sure when he'll be back at 100%. Getting him back early in the season would be absolutely huge. Um, they still have fifth-year senior James Rawls. He'll fill in at Hodgins' spot if uh, he's not quite ready. They really need Thomas Seo to step up and just be a people eater. He's the true nose on the roster, 6'3", 365 pounds. So just gobble up the guards and centers and really cause some problems for uh, any team that tries to run up the middle. Going to be his job this year. Um, secondary actually looks really promising. I mentioned it wasn't a talent issue. Um, in their uh, downfalls last year in pass defense. Uh, Jaden Grant played nickel really well. He's probably moving to one of the starting safety positions. They don't play with five defensive backs as much as a lot of teams in college football, so they want to get Grant out on the field, not only a special package player, so that's why he's moving to safety. Alton Julian will likely return from injury and for the other safety spot. Both starting corners are back. They've got fourth-year sophomore Alex Austin and Rajon Wright. He's Nashon Wright, uh, Dallas Cowboy cornerback's brother. Um, but the key is just really be complementary with the pass rush, right? Like I mentioned, pass rush has to get home. They have to play tighter coverage and maybe a little bit more press man um, to disrupt those wide receivers, knock them off their routes a little bit early in the uh, play so that those pass rushers have a better chance. Um, to get home so it just has to work better together um, and I think it will I think they're addressing that they definitely have the athletes to do it. it's just can that scheme find ways to get home to the quarterback more consistently their floor ceiling their over-unders at six and a half and you know before I, I I'm really high on the Beavers I like what they're doing like I said this division is wide open so there's not a lot of teams that just scare you naturally on their schedule, but before I hammer the over, I just really need to see some more consistency. Like I said, they were one and six away from Corvallis last year. I'm going to put them right at six and six for now. Um, their non-conference is tougher this year. They trade. Uh, they last year they played Purdue, Hawaii, and Idaho. 
This year, that shifts to Boise, a road trip to Fresno State and Montana State, who can be a dangerous FCS team. We have seen uh, FCS teams come into Pac-12 North stadiums and be very successful uh, within the past decade. So can't overlook Montana State. Um, I do think the division, though, is wide open enough to get them to a bowl. I, I, I do think that's their minimum. And, you know, if they can knock off a couple of teams that I have them pegged to lose to like that at Fresno's trip week two, I think is going to be really tough, but if they can find a way to win that one, then maybe they start to build a little momentum. Uh, as for their danger zone, their first two conference games um, are week four against USC at home and week five at Utah. So that is a really tough start to conference play. If they can somehow find a way to go one and one there, they beat both of those teams last year. Um, I think both of those teams are more talented this year, so won't be a t- uh, an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. After that, that's really their only extremely tough back-to-back, I would say. Um, you know, the rest of their tricky conference games, Washington State, Washington, Oregon, they kind of have more prep time for those, I would say. Obviously, you can't, if you're Oregon State, you're not going to overlook any Pac-12 opponent or any opponent, really. But um, their tougher games are more spaced out after that USC and Utah back-to-back. What do you have them going the first, we'll call it first five weeks of the season? So Boise, Fresno, Montana State, USC, Utah. What What's your projected record there? I think I've got them right at two and three. Um, okay. I have them beating Boise week one. I know Boise is a trendy pick. You know, they, they they should be better this year. I think experience is on Oregon State side. It's also at home and a night sure. game. So I, I have I have them having the edge there. Do have them falling at Fresno State, though. I really like the quarterback situation at Fresno State, and it's a home game for the Bulldogs. Yeah, um, back home against Montana, or I guess it's actually a neutral game site game in Portland against Montana State. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Um, just notice that. But uh, yeah, I, I do think USC and Utah find a way to win that game. And so they're sitting at two and three after the Utah game. That's definitely, you know, precarious. Uh, a, but that might be a win. Yeah, so two, two and three might be a win for that yeah. start. Uh, that is a really, really... Tough way to start the season. Um, I like that their bye comes late in the season. They've got Colorado at home and then a bye week to get ready for Washington, uh, which will be a Friday night um, in Seattle. So that, you know, I mean, listen, late in the season, attrition starts to wear in, injuries potentially, and not having the temptation to overlook Colorado, who's coming in, I, I mean, Spoiler alert to to next episode. I've got Colorado going one and eleven. Uh, I just think they're a really bad football team. But weird things happen when you start to overlook teams, uh, and so I think the bye week is is really really critical. And then yeah, Oregon State, especially down the stretch, Washington uh, versus Cal at Arizona State versus Oregon, they've got a chance to make some hay, and you know maybe even blow the top off and win eight nine games if they can shock. You know, a couple of teams, especially Oregon, right? I mean, who yeah. knows what, what Oregon truly is by the end of the season if they're not competing for any sort of playoff inclusion or, heaven forbid, they've somehow fallen out of the Pac-12 North. Oh, I say Pac-12 North. 
the the race for the Pac-12 championship game because there are no divisions anymore uh, as far as that goes. What are what are we calling it now? It's not the Civil War. It's like the Platypus Cup. Platypus or... Cup. Yep. <laughs> Which is wild on its own. So you know you throw you throw out the records there, and Oregon State could could be could be uh, rubbing some some teams' noses in it come the end of the season. Garrett, I'm I'm interested to know kind of what you think about about the Beavers here. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a little bit of an optimistic take. Uh, personally, I have them going four and eight on the year. I think they start the season one and four. Um, I and I think it's gonna be a little bit of a a beat down for this team to kind of start the year. I, I don't want to be mean, you know. I don't want to. You know, come across as the mean guy here, but it's yeah, I just, You're I just think there. starting with US, USC and Utah in conference, especially at Utah, I think Utah is going to have their way, just kind of do whatever they want to. Um, and I, I just, man, I don't see how, especially for a team where I think a lot of last year was them winning some big games and feeling confident. I don't see how that doesn't go the exact opposite way after getting smacked in the face by USC and Utah to start. Um, and especially with the way that Utah plays, they're going to be so physical, you know, having to go through a full 60 minutes of football, just having guys do whatever they want to on the lines of scrimmage, run the ball down your throat, hitting your guys hard. Like, I think it's just going to be a real rough start to the season, uh, for the Beavers. And, and I think that will carry its way through the schedule. I think they're good enough to beat, you know, a few of the teams on the schedule, but yeah, I just think it's kind of a, a reversion and a correction from last year for them. And, uh, I, I'm just a lot more pessimistic on the Gophers than you guys, or the Beavers than you guys, not the Gophers. I'm pessimistic I've got... on the Gophers too. So I am okay. also pessimistic on the Gophers. <laughs> I generally don't like those kinds of animals. The buck-toothed <laughs> animals are yes. not Garrett's favorite. I think Utah certainly is going to beat Oregon State. I, I do have USC beating them right now, but USC is not going to push Oregon State around. They they're not they're not physical in the trenches. O- offensively, certainly. No, no. Uh, I think. Oregon State might even, I mean, guys, Oregon State might have a, a better offensive line. I think they do have a better offensive line. Yeah, they than definitely do. Offensive line is a huge it's really scary. Yeah. yeah. Defensively, I think there are some questions up front. And again, you know, running that 3-4 scheme can be a little tricky, especially in pass coverage. Um so I don't know that USC is going to beat Oregon State up. I think Utah is. Yeah, to clarify, uh, I wasn't saying that the Trojans were going to push them around. I think the Trojans will beat them just on sheer talent, but I don't think they're going to be the out-physical team. I do think, though, that being 1-3, and three, walking into Utah, and then getting smacked around is enough to kind of break <laughs> a team's will. That, that would happen to most teams. If you start the season 1-3 and three and then just get bullied, that's sure. enough to break a team's will. So sure. they kind of give off just just to put it in perspective for like a team that we've experienced. They're not going to run a similar offense by any means, but they kind of give me Arkansas under Brett Bielema vibes yeah. a little bit, where they're not the most talented team by any stretch, but they are going to just bite your ankles in the trenches and probably run for <laughs> two hundred yards if you're not competent on the defensive line. Yeah. And point to me to the defensive line in the Pac-12 that's scary to go against as, as a competent run game. Like I, I, I struggle to find a lot of those across the conference. So that's the hope if you're a Beaver fan and just cut down on the turnovers that that's yeah. huge. And if, uh, if, if they can cut down on the interceptions, especially with chance Nolan, it, 
I, I'm optimistic. It, it's going to be a really tough start, but we'll see. They they had a tough start last year, and they did yep. better than most expected. Uh, you're right about the defensive line depth. I mean, historically, Washington has been that that team, especially in the North, that has just controlled the trenches on the defensive side. Oregon's obviously had the most talented edge rushers as of late, but a lot of questions. Uh, you know, we talked about Oregon already. We'll get to Washington here in a little bit. Before we get there, though. Garrett, you're right back up on the clock. You've got the Stanford Cardinal, and my goodness, it could be a rough year for David Shaw and company. Yeah, I'm just going to stay pessimistic for the next few minutes. Um, sorry, guys. <laughs> a little bit of a bummer episode from your boy. So, um, no, things have been down for David Shaw and the Cardinal as of late. Uh, last three years, they saw 4-8 and eight in 2019, 4-2 in a shortened COVID year, and then a very disappointing 3-9 and nine year last year. Um, for a program who was kind of a perennial threat to compete every single year, uh, you know, for that, you know, championship spot on the West Coast, the last few years have been really like a confusing drop-off. Like, you know, I, I almost don't know what's happening. They didn't change coaching staffs. You know, I think I've seen something like their coordinators have been there for a combined 29 years. You know, David Shaw has been there the whole time. You know, what's happening? I'm not exactly sure, but they've dropped off for sure. Um, they're not really going to change that much. They are going to change their scheme a little bit on defense. They're going to switch from a 3-4 to a 4-3. But, you know, for the most part, things are going to stay the same for the Smarties out west. So is it going to be enough for them to sort of regain their spot atop the conference? Uh, I personally don't think so, and here's kind of why. So on offense, they're going to stay committed to their pro-style offense, right? It is a long time since the Pac-12 has moved on past the pro-style offense, and they are just going to commit to it. Um, last year, they scored 20.4 points per game, which is ranked 113th out of 130. That's not very good. That is not three touchdowns. Um, they're going to be looking to right the ship, and it's going to come down, I think, to personnel and execution because they're not going to change their scheme. Um, Tanner McKee is going to be the guy at the quarterback spot. He had a very up and down year. Um, he's definitely going to need to improve if things are going to get better for the Cardinal. He started the year with 11 touchdowns and only two interceptions and things were kind of rolling for him. Uh, but then he finishes the year with a total of 15 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Um, that's just, that's not very good. He had 65% completions. That's good pedestrian sort of numbers. That's going to have to come up as well. He should improve with some more time in the offense, but you can go ahead and put me in the sort of wait and see category. Um, there should be some good talent for McKee to throw to, though. They get Bryson, Trey, uh, it should be Trey Main. Uh, he's back from injury. He had 15.3 yards per catch last year before he got hurt, so he's definitely talented. Um, and that was the stretch where he did go 11 touchdowns and two interceptions. So maybe he's sort of the secret ingredient to this offense. Uh, but again, getting him back should be a big shot in the arm. Uh, they're also going to have the experienced Elijah Higgins, the talented John Humphreys. So that should hopefully open up this offense a little bit, help them sort of get the ball downfield. But the star of the show on their offense is going to be EJ Smith, son of the NFL and Cowboys legend Emmett Smith. He certainly has the pedigree. Um, the coaching staff is super high on his ability right now to be very special in this balanced offense. He should get a lot of touches this year uh, and should become a bit of a household name. If for some reason he can't do it, they do have a guy named Casey Filkins. He can absolutely fly. He's their punt returner right now, and he's got speed for days. Um, he could be going from sort of a special teams contributor, maybe to a change of pace guy, maybe a burner out the backfield type of situation. So um, interesting to see how well they do running the football this year. 
Uh, the offensive line will be the strength for the Cardinal. They're old, they're experienced, they return a lot of production. They've got Walter Rouse, Drake Nugent, Barrett Miller, and Branson Bragg all coming back with lots of experience. So they should be able to give this offense no real excuse for poor performance. Um, now to kind of talk on the more pessimistic side, let's talk defense. Uh, look, Stanford has been bad on defense for a while. Um, a lot of it seems to kind of just be chalked up to a talent gap compared to years previous. They've struggled with athleticism and especially size in the box. So they're going to be switching from a three down front to a four down front. Kind of like I said earlier, they're hoping that they can just put more bodies closer to the line of scrimmage and hopefully muddy some of that up. Um, but this defensive line is very thin. They currently, as of last time I checked, six guys listed on their roster as a defensive lineman. That's what? not enough. That's not enough. <laughs> they have six defensive linemen on the roster last I checked. That number might have changed. Maybe they went to the transfer portal. Um, maybe they reclassified a couple guys. Rudy's <laughs> going to Stanford, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Um Bright spot on the D-line, they have Tobin Phillips. He should be really good. He's somewhere in the 290 range in terms of his weight, um, and he should be really good. But they're going to need from the other D-tackle, it's going to be Anthony Franklin or Zach Buckley, and both of those guys weigh in the 260s. That's not good on the interior of a defensive line. They're going to have to find a way to just play above their weight or something. I, they're going to have to be a lot better. Um, off of the edge, they're going to be small as well. Because they're switching from a 3-4 to a 4-3, they're actually converting a lot of their sort of outside linebackers into rush edges. And I think that's going to be how they convert into that scheme. Um, they do have a guy named Lavani uh, Damuni. He's a former outside linebacker who's very talented, but he's going to be coming off the edge with his hand in the dirt now. And he's a little bit on the small side as well. I think he was sort of in that 240 range last I checked. So um, behind him, there's almost nothing worth noting in terms of talent. Um, they're going to really need to figure out who's lining up on the line of scrimmage, even if they're not great fits, right? They're going to need to figure out, you know, can they slide a linebacker in? Maybe can they just get guys around the line of scrimmage? They're going to have to figure some stuff out pretty quick. Um, everybody returns in the secondary, which is definitely a plus. They have guys like Kendall Williamson, Jonathan McGill. They've played a long time. They should be great leaders for this defense. They're also bringing back Jimmy Wyrick and Q Blue Kelly. Um, they should also be big returners to help this secondary kind of fill some of those gaps. So it's not all doom and gloom for this defense. You know, hopefully those guys on the back end can kind of take away some of the pass game so that they can focus on just putting guys in the box and trying to stop the run with a very small front seven. Um, floor ceiling for them, their over under is four and a half. I'm going to go under with this and I don't really feel that uh, conflicted about it. Um, I think when you have that many question marks on your defense, especially just in terms of size, things are going to be really rough. You know, if you really try, you might be able to get them to five and seven, but I think this is just another really rough year for them. Uh, the danger zone for the Cardinal. Weeks two through four, they play Lincoln Riley's Trojans. They trip up to Washington and then they play uh, the Ducks in Eugene. So that's going to be a pretty tough start to the season against some solid teams where I think they're going to want to get off to a good start, but just are not going to be able to. Okay, I, I looked it up. It's not quite as dire on the I've defensive line. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've, but, got 
I've got 15 scholarship guys that are listed, but the vast majority of them are edge guys. That yes. Garrett's yeah. point. Those are, are all those linebackers that are transitioning. Yeah. 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 So, so the it, beef, the, the big uh-huh. uglies in the middle, yes, I, I only counted six or seven of those, which is yeah. not. And, and not we're talking about point. true defensive linemen here. Not right. talking about right. an undersized edge, you know, that might be able to get something. At, like we're talking true defensive linemen. Right. They don't have the guys to, to even rotate. Like you can't even rotate just, oh, we need to keep him fresh. Here's a bad player, but at least we can keep that guy fresh. They don't have the dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's Washington's problem too. We'll get there in just a second, but rotation and and, and fresh bodies to come in, especially against some of these more explosive offenses, it's it's mm-hmm. you are truly setting yourself behind the eight ball, not having depth, whether it's recruiting out of high school or bringing guys in through the transfer portal to not have depth is such a shot in the foot to your program. And, you know, Stanford, look, they're, they're one of these programs that we, we always talk about that look, when you are an academic elite, things are just going to be way more difficult when it comes to recruiting because you are self-imposing limits to your recruiting base. And, Obviously, you know, to, to be a school as reputable as Stanford is in academics, I, I don't think that anyone can legitimately ask them to change that in the name of sport. Stanford no. has won like all the directors cups, although they I think they've lost the last two to, now to Texas. But outside of football, Stanford athletics wins everything. So they're doing just fine. The right. problem is, especially in the day and age where we are in college football, where offense you know, runs a million miles an hour and scores 70 points a game. If you don't have a Bama or Georgia level defense, you're getting left behind. One guy I do want to shout out though, a local kid from Arlington Martin, Ernest Cooper, mm-hmm. very, very talented edge player. He went to Stanford. I'm really excited to see what he can do for the Cardinal in a season where you're looking for positives. Yeah. Well, and to your point, I think the issue is, you know, they, they're going to have the issue getting some guys there, right? They're going to have the issue getting guys on the roster the roster's kind of taken a dive off a cliff, you know, since the days of guys like Andrew Luck and Christian McCaffrey and, you know, having guys who were pretty solid players for him. It seems like the roster just got completely out of hand. So, you know, at some point, if you're the coaching staff, if you're David Shaw, you have to be willing to say, look, I need to figure out a better way to do this, right? I need to figure out a better thing than maybe just the pro style offense, right? I'm not saying the pro style offense is bad. I think there's a lot of benefits to the pro style offense, but you know, maybe in the Pac-12, it's just time to look around and try something else, right? And you would hope that you would be able to say, well, if we're not going to be able to fix the admissions issues for your football team, if you're not going to be able to fix, you know, getting guys that are talented on the roster, I guess swinging and missing on guys or just bad evaluations, whatever it's been, if you can't fix any of that, just try to put your guys in a good position to succeed. And it just seems like the last couple of years, they haven't been able to figure that out. Now they are changing the scheme on the defense, so maybe that helps. But I'm still just super worried about him offensively. If if EJ Smith, you know, faces eight man boxes the whole year, it's gonna be a long year for the Cardinal. It's a good point. It's a good point. Uh, not not a ton of positives for Stanford uh, this season. I, I have them going two and ten. I think it's just gonna be a lot of soul searching. Do you guys think that David Shaw leaves 2022 with his job? Yeah, he probably will because they just don't seem really interested in putting him on any kind of hot seat. Like it, yeah. it, he always makes those lists of, you know, 
top 10, top 15 coaches in college football, but it's been a minute since we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, that elite production from Stanford. So now one thing I do want to note on that though, I respect Stanford for doing something. I think a lot more college football programs should do, and it's stand by a coach who's gotten you there. Right. Sure. There's a lot of programs that'll, you know, I think especially with like, you know, um, South Carolina, right. They had Spurrier there. Things were great. Things are rolling. And then it was like, all right, it's time to move on. He had a couple bad years, but like, let the guy go, let him keep going. And and I know that age factored into that to some degree, but you know, to a certain extent, if you have a coach like that, you can also maybe point to, uh, to Texas, right. Where they had, uh, Mac Brown, he had been rolling. He had won him a championship and a couple of underperforming seasons had them running for, you know, Charlie Strong and Tom Herman, you know, and that just, it wasn't the same. So it's, it's kind of a grass isn't always a greener situation where obviously Shaw has not been performing well the last few years, but at least they're standing by their guys. So I respect that at a certain point though, if you're David Shaw, you have to put a better product on the field. You can't just stick by a guy because he did something nice for you 10 years ago, right? Or 15 years ago. At some point it's time to start winning again. Three and nine, two and 10 would is going to test that loyalty. No, no doubt about it. (laughs) All right, well, let's move on to Washington. Just two more programs left to go here in the PAC 12 North and the Huskies are in an interesting spot. So, Despite a total lack of security in the Pac-12 when it comes to you know, what the conference is going to look like, where they stand in the national landscape, brand new head coach Kalen DeBoer is trying to play savior for, for Washington on the field. Jimmy Lake was supposed to be that guy, and his tenure was as head-scratching as you could possibly have, and it went as horribly as you could imagine, especially considering he was the hand-picked guy. To, to come in after Chris Peterson, after Chris unexpectedly retired. Lake goes seven and six in uh, the pandemic season. And then, or I say seven and six, his tenure was seven and six. So a successful pandemic season, which just looked incredibly weird. And then four and five in 2021 before getting fired for a bevy of reasons. So they lose to an FCS opponent. They get molly by Michigan. So all that to say, they they underperform. They're they're treading water. It was a top twenty five team. I think they were a top twenty team when the season starts. They get off to a horrendous start, and then things start to kind of trickle out about Jimmy Lake. How he's not necessarily loved by his players. How the administration doesn't love him. You know, he kind of he slaps a player trying to pull him back from from a fight on the field. You know, what nine games into the season. And Washington immediately jumps on that. Somebody tweeted the clip out, and Washington uses it as cause to fire him and, and clean house there. So all of that to say, they bring in Kalen DeBoer from Fresno State. We are big fans of DeBoer and what he did at Fresno. I certainly hope that he can translate that to Washington. Guy has a championship-winning pedigree, right? He went 12-6 and six at Fresno State, but before that, he accrued a 79-9 and overall record as a head coach and won three national titles for NAIA school, University of Sioux Falls. Now, not comparing Sioux Falls to Washington in the slightest, but what I am saying is we've talked about Lance Leipold, Chris Kleiman, guys have, that have won at lower levels and then go on and instill that same mentality, that same culture at the next level. 
I think that's what DeBoer was doing at Fresno. I think he's going to do it at Washington. So the Huskies feel like they have their man. The problems, though, are a couplefold. First of all, highlighted by the lack of recruiting success over these last couple of years. That was one of the things that DeBoer highlighted in their State of the Program article on The Athletic is he loves getting to sit right over the, the water and the beautiful scenery up in Seattle. But scenery aside, it's not paid off on the recruiting trail. Um, so combine, you know, lack of star talent with literally little to no development, especially at the quarterback spot, which we'll get to in a second. It's got Washington behind the eight ball right now. Defense finished 37th in total defense last season, allowing 22.7 points per game, which very fine, right? Normally when you have a top 40 defense, you're winning football games. You are one of the better programs in the country. The problem is the offense finished 108th in the country last season. They were only averaging 21.5 points per game. So you are literally getting beat on the offensive side of the ball uh, across the entire season. On average, you're losing those games, and that's truly what played out in 2021 for Washington. So as we head into 2022, the offense, led by Ryan Grubb as the offensive coordinator, he's got three quarterbacks to pick from, and this is the first thing that Washington has to nail down. They have to decide who is calling the signals for them in 2022. Returners are Dylan Morris and former five-star Sam Heward, plus the addition of transfer quarterback Michael Penix Jr. from Indiana. The staff from the outset came in and told Heward and Morris, hey, we are going to bring in a transfer quarterback. We want competition. If you want the job, go get it. And so they brought in Penix Jr. from from Indiana, a kid that really flashed during the pandemic season, not so much last season, but he got hurt. Um, we don't know who the starter is going to be right now. That was not settled in the slightest in spring ball. The whole idea of going and winning the job just straight up didn't happen. So a lot of questions, certainly more questions than answers. The publications like The Athletic and as you read beat reporters, they're going to tell you that Penix Jr. is the favorite unless otherwise stated, but nobody within the program has, has named a starter yet. So fall camp is going to be the battleground there. And who knows? We, we might even see that quarterback battle drag into the rest of the regular or the beginning of the regular season, I should say. At running back, you thought the uncertainty at quarterback was bad. At running back, it's even worse. Depth is as critical this year as any time we've, previewed so far I mean we've and we've had teams that you know oh it's running back by committee and they've got four or five guys that are going to get in there Washington has no idea who's starting at running back and that is uber concerning uh for me where I sit they've got so many injuries plaguing the room that Camden Sermon former walk-on quarterback got the most snaps at running back this spring a walk-on quarterback who spins back to a running back that is as dire as I've ever seen. Um, if they can get healthy, they've got Richard Newton and Cam Davis as their best returners, but the coaching staff also went out to raid the portal. They took new faces from New Mexico, Virginia, and Nebraska. And the big stat that Washington really has to improve on, and this isn't just on their running backs, it's also on their offensive line, they were 112th in the country last year in yards before contact. Their running backs, on average, we're running into at least one defender 1.4 yards away from the line of scrimmage. That is brutal when it comes to establishing a consistent running game. Uh, when you look at wide receivers, the Huskies should be pretty strong at this position. They're young but productive. 
and they, they really should have multiple options for whoever wins the quarterback job. Terrell Bynum came in from USC. He's probably going to be one of their leaders and get plenty of touches. They've got Devin Culp and Ryan Otten at tight end, replacing Kate Otten, Ryan's older brother, who was just drafted by the Buccaneers this last uh, offseason. Cade was one of the best tight ends in the country, was the guy kind of receiving for, for the Huskies, even in a down year. Offensive line-wise, last year was really, really sad for you Husky fans if you enjoy good O-line play. It was just a tough scene. From everything I've read and researched, the coaching staff believes that they've got a new scheme in place under Ryan Grubb that's going to allow for more effective play from the big men. But let's be honest, that's a hope, not a fact right now. Jackson Kirkland is back after initially declaring for the draft at tackle. He kind of got a lay of the land and decided, nope, I'm not going to go do this, at least not this year. So a big win for Washington. He's a two-time All-Pac-12 first-team talent. They've also got six-year seniors up and down the line, and they only lost one scholarship lineman from a season ago. So returning production off the charts on the offensive line, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I, I guess we'll wait and see. Defensively, the Huskies have co-coordinators this year in William Inge and Chuck Morrell. Uh, they have veterans at every level, but they're replacing two of the best cornerbacks in the country from a season ago in Kyler Gorton and Trent McDuffie, both of whom went really highly in the NFL draft. Defensive line is loaded, so big strength for Washington. I mentioned that's historically kind of been what they're known for. Still some question marks, though. The anchor of the line will be, and I'm going to try and get this in one take, Tui Latui Gasanoa, after leading the team in tackles through 11 starts last season. Quick round of applause for that pronunciation. Uh, what they really need, though, and this is what I alluded to earlier, was more production from the edge rushers. Uh, they just don't have depth there. They didn't get much production last season. And this is a direct quote from the article. They, quote, plan to rotate three guys at two spots, end quote. We talked about the lack of depth from Stanford. Three edge rushers for two different spots is concerning to say the least. I guess it's a starting point, but my goodness, you'd better find some other guys. Uh, Brelin Trice and Jeremiah Martin are both finally healthy and ready to go. Trice has been there for a little while. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Martin, excuse me, transferred from Texas A&M. Uh, they've got several former four stars and a five star and Seville Smalls who are going to play outside linebacker. So hopefully this is where you start to see some of the edge depth take place. If they've got a surplus of, of outside linebackers, I don't know, maybe they spend some down. Who knows exactly what they're going to do. Uh, they really need bumps in productivity from, from that position this year, though. They only got seven and a half of their 20 sacks last year were from edge players. That is atrocious when it comes to pressuring the quarterback, shortening possession time, shortening drives, and getting your defense off the field. Inside, they're going to need transfers from UAB and Pitt to carry the team at linebacker until offseason injuries are nursed back to health for the returners. Uh, plus, they lost the aforementioned uh, Jackson Sermon to Cal. So their big leader, their captain of the defense, in addition to the cornerbacks, also gone. Huskies are searching for the next cornerstones at cornerback, as I mentioned. Uh, it's safety. They have a six-year senior in Alex Cook and junior Asa Turner returning to start. So the safeties should be fairly solid, but a lot of questions out wide at cornerback. Floor ceiling for the Huskies right now, the over-under, as it's currently set, is seven and a half. I'm cautiously optimistic 
that Washington bounces back. And you may say, Mitch, you have outlined nothing but negatives so far for this team. Why on earth do you think that they're going to win football games this year? And hey, that's a fair question, listener. Pac-12, I think, is open and ready to to kind of allow a team like Washington to gain footing. It's a very talented team. It's just an unproven team. So four and five before Jimmy Lake got fired last year was an absolute shocker. The Huskies were supposed to be a top 20 team, and they just never reached that ceiling. Personally, I find myself buying stock in Kalen DeBoer. I'm not saying that they're going to go 10 and two. I'm not even really all that confident that they go nine and three. And I know I've got them predicted at nine and three, but I think it's going to be a relatively successful season for the Huskies. I think they're going to have time to work out the kinks, to figure out which pieces belong in which slots. And overall, I think Washington is returning to winning football. So the ceiling, nine and three. That is their absolute ceiling if everything goes right. Give me the over. I'll go ahead and just stamp of approval there. The floor around the line, I'm going to say probably seven and five as I look at their schedule. Trey, if you'll hit the danger zone sound for me. Uh, their, Their danger zone... I could have gone a couple different places. I'm going to go right in the middle of their season. So week four versus Stanford, week five at UCLA, week six at Arizona State, and week seven versus Arizona. That, to me, I've got them going 4-0 and in this run, and in order to get to that ceiling, you cannot drop a game there. You're going to be more talented than every single team you play in that stretch. And so to me, even though it's not their most challenging stretch, like they're going to face week 10, they host Oregon State, they play Oregon, and then obviously finish up with the Apple Cup in, in Washington State. That's the more challenging stretch when it comes to just pure talent and in matchups. But if Washington is going to pay off expectations this year, they have to go 4-0 through that stretch. They can't get distracted, can't get to a, a place where they're looking ahead to other matchups. you got to take care of business each and every week. So... Um, there you go. Washington Huskies. I would love to know if there are any Husky fans that, that listen to this pod right now. If you think I'm just way too optimistic, please let me know. If, if you're also drinking a little bit of the Huskies Kool-Aid, DM me. I, I'd love to love to buy around for you. I, I'm interested in, I, I think they can reach that ceiling just because of the way the schedule sets up, right? Like the, I don't think you mentioned this, but they... They miss uh, Utah and USC from the South, so that's huge. They do have road games at UCLA and at Arizona State, but, I mean, the non-conference isn't super scary. Like, they, they play Michigan State at home. That Michigan State beat them pretty badly last year, but Portland State and Kent State not exactly causing you to shake in your boots. Now, they did lose to Montana last year, so... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All things need to be qualified with that, but different staff, different team. So, by the way, the the Grizz and FCS news, I believe, for like the first time in twenty years, are picked to to win the Big West. So, shout out to to Montana. Wow. There we go. We we, I would love to see a game there before uh, that. That's a bucket list atmosphere for me, no but. doubt. Well, on on my vacation, you go into a bunch of the sports bars, and literally half of it will be decorated with Montana Grizz uh, attire. And the other half of it is Montana State Bobcats, uh, you know, 
decoration. So it's a great right, rivalry. Right it's there really with you. Underrated rivalry. Right there with you. Would would absolutely love to see that. Um, all right. Well, so t- tell me, am, am I too high on Washington? Like, where do you guys have the Huskies finishing up this season? I kind of ignorantly penciled them in at eight and four just because <laughs> I mean I, I didn't do as much research on Washington for this show but the the combination of just the league being so wide open like we've said a million times on this show and they still have talent on that roster I know they haven't recruited up to their potential they're still going to be probably the second most talented team in the division on paper that's going to translate to a lot of wins. It should, at least, with a competent coaching staff. Jimmy Lake, goodness, he just really had no idea what he was doing or how to run <laughs> that major program. Obviously, a great defensive coordinator, but in over his head as a head coach, to say the least. And so I think getting competency back at the head coaching position is going to be huge for them. And I, I think they could maybe ride that to eight wins with the schedule, but that means not slipping up. Like you said, against the ones that you're penciling in against a win, we haven't seen Washington be able to do, get through that unscathed. So I think they're comfortably making a bowl, but challenging for the conference title is probably a couple years away. Yeah. I've got them at eight and four as well. I think my big issue with them is I think they have a little bit lower of a floor than either of you guys do. Um, I think Kent state's a little bit sneaky, as an opener. Um, and then Michigan state, I don't think they really have much of a chance in that game. And my biggest issue with the way their schedules lined up is they don't really have a good home stretch. If you look at the last half of their schedule, they alternate road and home games, right? So they don't have to go on any big road trips, but they're also not getting a little bit of time at home to kind of get some momentum and get some stuff, right. You know? So if I'm looking at this, yeah, Arizona state, Arizona, not teams you're probably worried about, but you alternate those, you go to Cal, come home for Oregon state at Oregon at home for Colorado. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a rough end of their schedule with Oregon and Washington state there. I think that could be really tough road games to finish on. Um, I don't think they beat UCLA on the road personally. And I think if you're, if you're, looking for reasons to be concerned with this schedule it has to do with the fact that yeah there's some trickier games in here where if you're looking to the next one i think you could get trapped in a couple of these spots now i think they're good enough to overcome a lot of this i think that there's a lot of really bad teams in the pac-12 but there's you know those issues at running back the issues at defensive end i think there's just enough question marks there where they got to be real careful or they're going to slip up and find a way to miss a bowl game personally all right, well, Trey, bring us home. Let's get weird in in Washington State. Take us to Pullman. We're getting wild on the Patoose, baby. So Woo! Washington State, you know, guys, we've talked a lot about reality show programs this preview season. I nominate the 2021 Washington State Cougars. Nick Rolovich, just not a good fit i'm gonna leave it at that you can google it if you want the full story i don't want any (laughs) disclaimer or fact checking bot to flag this episode so we're gonna leave it at that um honestly i didn't even think of that (laughs) not we're not gonna say the quiet part out loud here but google it if you don't know what i'm talking about (laughs) and you'll know why i'm doing that so um rolovich gets dismissed after seven games uh they're sitting at four and three 
And uh, they could have just packed it in, but really the reason I'm so high on Washington State this year is I absolutely love the job Jake Dickert did rallying the troops last year. He comes over from the defensive coordinator position. He takes over after a four and three start and he leads them to a three and two record. They did lose the Sun Bowl in a really weird situation where they're playing a replacement team. They're supposed to play Miami, end up playing Central Michigan at the last minute. But the brass was so impressed that they gave uh, Dickert the permanent head coaching title. He's entering his real year one. And the question is, can they just take advantage of a lot of the questions that they have around the division and just keep this really solid run that we've had since Mike Leach kind of found his stride? Can they keep that run going? So offensively, we're getting back to the bread and butter that made Washington State kind of break through. Eric Morris is coming up as the new offensive coordinator. He's coming up from, uh, he was the head coach at Incarnate Word in San Antonio. If you're familiar with Texas football at all, you know Eric Morris's name. He was a tech wide receiver uh, under Sonny Cumbie and Graham Harrell once upon a time. Before Incarnate, he was the offensive coordinator at Tech under Cliff. Uh, he got to coach Baker Mayfield and Pat Mahomes. So he has skins on the wall and he's run some really, really fun offenses both at Tech and Incarnate Word. But the big hype piece on offense is the guy that he's bringing with him up from San Antonio. So Cameron Ward, he's making the move with Morris up from San Antonio. He literally lit the FCS world on fire last year with 4,700 yards and 47 touchdowns. And Ruta Incarnate's best season ever. They went 10-3, and they won the Southland, and made it to the second round of the FCS playoffs. So... They're trying to do the old uh, Zach Kitley, Bailey Zappi move from last year, where those two moved from Houston Baptist to Western Kentucky. They were an absolute problem for the Hilltoppers last year um, at the FBS level, making that transition really smoothly. Cameron Ward and Eric Morris are going to try to do the same thing, move from the FCS up to the FBS, this time at the Power 5 level. But I like it. I really am excited to see what they can do. I think they're going to be the most entertaining offense easily in this division. Um, they're going to put up a ton of points. And Cameron Ward looks like a legit NFL talent to me, to my untrained eye. Not a scout, obviously, but I think Cameron Ward is going to be on an NFL roster. So they're going to run. I This is not an official term at all, but I really like, it's kind of like a power air raid. So it's really similar to the scheme that Leach ran uh, and still runs at Mississippi State, but they really like to incorporate the run game more. They really like to use a tight end. Um, and it's going to be more run-focused than the typical air raid that you would think about. Um, Renard Bell is going to be the leader at wide receiver. They have so many perfect air raid guys on this roster. So Renard Bell is a perfect example. He's a six-year senior. Missed last year with an ACL injury, but he's five foot eight, 170 yards, but just going to gobble up targets and stats, right? He's going to be the guy. They have a ton of guys in the five, six to five, nine range that are just going to make you angry if you're an opposing fan, because you're like, why are these guys going for a hundred yards? And why can't we tackle these guys? It's the scheme. And, and they're really smart receivers. They know how to get open and the scheme schemes, those guys open and lets them make a few guys miss, and it's just frustrating if you're a defense. But they also have some big guys outside. Uh, Dejon Stribling had a productive year last year. Um, Donovan Ollie's going to be another big body. They brought in Zariah Beeson from Oregon State. He could be a sneaky big pickup. Uh, he started all 13 games for the Beavers last year. Um, all those guys will compete for time on the outside. 
tight end depth. They haven't really used the tight end a ton at Washington State in the past few years. Like I said, they're kind of adding that wrinkle to the scheme this year. Um, but they got a good start to building that room up with Andre Dollar transferring in from Oklahoma. Six foot five, 238 pounds. They got him to come to Pullman over Oregon. It was a head-to-head battle that they won over the Ducks. So huge, huge get. Um, he could be really productive as a new wrinkle in this offense. Uh, Nakia Watson and Jalen Jenkins, uh, Jenkins, they're an interesting running back tandem. They're kind of a thunder and lightning setup with uh, Watson being more of the power role and Jenkins kind of being a shifty pass catching option. Obviously, Air Raids love to feed the running back the ball out of the backfield uh, in the passing game, too. So could be another wrinkle to that offense there. Offensive line is a big question mark. Um, they lost four of the five starters from last year's O-line. They're also on their fourth O-line coach in three years, which sounds weird. Didn't know that was possible. Um, I guess it has something to do with the transition last year. But uh, Jarrett Kingston, uh, he looks like he's going to be the guy at left tackle at 6'5", 300. After that, it's wide open. But, guys, someone that I'm really interested to see if he sees the field at all. Um, Jack Wilson, remember this name because he is 6'11. He's up to 320 pounds after some time (laughs) in the program. He started out his career, his college career, as a basketball player at Oregon State in Idaho. He was literally discovered by the strength coach working at a GNC. Like, you can't, (laughs) you can't make this stuff up. I would love to see him earn some playing time. I would love to see Washington State trot out. A 6'11 tackle or something like that or put him in the tight end maybe and have him run a couple routes like perfect washington state situation I, I i really hope that he gets a lot of playing time but anyways uh over on the defensive side of the ball uh clutch plays were really the story last year they were the best in the pac 12 in red zone defense and takeaways Neither of those stats really transfer year to year. It's not really a consistent stat. If you have a high takeaway year, usually that comes back down to earth. Same thing with red zone defense. Can they step up and play more consistent every down defense this year? That's the big question. Um, Brian Ward is coming up from Nevada to take over at defensive coordinator. He's going to try to provide that consistency. They've got a nice defensive end tandem of Ron Stone and Brennan Jackson. They combined for nine sacks and uh, 17 and a half tackles for loss last year. Defensive tackle has a lot of big bodies like uh, Antonio Poole and Christian Mejia. The biggest defensive addition, though, was uh, Dayon Henley. He had 103 tackles for uh, playing for Ward at Nevada last year. They beat out hometown USC to get his services. So another big head-to-head transfer battle win over uh, a conference foe there. They also have another L.A. to Nevada guy in Jordan Lee, who's joining the secondary. He's probably going to slot in at a safety spot. Free safety is wide open um, with a couple freshmen and a JUCO transfer as their options. Armani Marsh uh, is probably the most proven playmaker at uh, defensive back. He's moving around at nickel um, and corner. They kind of like to plug him in at different places. Again, uh, bringing in a lot of new faces there as well. They got Utah State transfer Cam Lampkin. Derek Langford uh, started three games for the Cougars last year. He's another option at corner. But as a whole, they really are going to try to continue. They want to be more consistent down to down, like I say, but they don't want to lose that identity of being a high havoc, high takeaway defense. 
they picked off 15 passes last year and allowed just 16 passing touchdowns. So that's stout. That is a really, really good ratio. Obviously that ranks top 10 in the country in both categories. So really excited to see if they can keep that going. Their floor ceiling for this year, their over under is five and a half. And guys, <laughs> maybe it's because I haven't gotten to play that sound yet this episode and I just wanted to get it in. But <laughs> I like Washington State this year. If it wasn't for their schedule, I would be picking them easily over Washington to be second in the division. And I think if can't, you know, Cameron Ward, if he can hit the ground running, then I definitely don't see them missing a bowl. That's why I'm confident in that over five and a half prediction. Really like the potential of Dickert uh, as the head coach and the players just really seem to want to play for him after everything they went through last year. Um, if they really click, then it's a dark horse North title contender in my mind as a ceiling. I mean, it's a wide open division. Like we keep saying if they get that offense can just score a lot of points and the defense can keep getting takeaways, then that's a great recipe for a surprise team. And Oregon's really the only team that I would straight up pick against them confidently on their schedule. But like I said, their danger zone It's a tough schedule, especially when you compare them with Apple Cup flow Washington. One of the reasons I was high on Washington record-wise is they miss USC and Utah. Obviously, Washington State draws both of those teams, as well as both of the Arizona schools out of the South. Their true danger zone, week six through eight, they're at USC, at Oregon State, a team, another team I'm higher on the most, by week before coming back home to play Utah. So... That's just a tough stretch. They also have a, a non-conference trip to Wisconsin week two that's going to be really tough, and they open conference play at home against Oregon. So if they can weather the storm in the first half, if they can find a way to get to four wins before the bye week, um, which you know Idaho and Colorado State you pencil in as a win, Cal I think you do, if they can find a way to win one more against Oregon, USC, and Oregon State before going to Utah, I'm really confident that they can be a problem down the stretch. I I may be now listen, I was down in San Antonio working for a different university when Incarnate Word popped off with Cameron Ward last year. So I've seen what this kid can do. He's awesome. <laughs> like he yeah. is the perfect quarterback. You can probably find a replay of I would watch their first round game against SFA. Last year, you can probably find that replay out there on YouTube if you're curious, but turn the tape on, man. He is electric. Yeah, big body, great platform to throw from, huge arm. I'm Listen, I'm right there with you. Now, the offensive line concerns me, uh, but I'm actually higher on, on Wazoo than, than even you are. I think I've got them going 8-4. and four. Um, You guys have them going 7-5 and five right now, and you're right. I mean, their schedule is harder than Washington, and so... Uh, I, I filled out my Pac-12 predictions a little while ago, so even I've actually got Washington State winning the Apple Cup. Uh, I do too. I so think they'll be yeah, Washington. At, at home. I, I think Washington finds or Washington State. I'm sorry, finds a way to win that. So yeah, I, I think. Look, you upset Oregon early on in the season, and at all of, all of a sudden things things become at least a little bit more attractive now. 
as we'll talk about in the next episode, and I don't remember who has the USC uh, uh, prediction uh, and preview, I'm not super high on USC in, in year one. I'm just not. I, I think they've got way too much to overhaul from a 4-8 and eight team last year that couldn't tackle a practice dummy. And so Washington State going on the road to USC, yeah, I mean, on paper, it's like, oh, well, you give USC that game. Washington State over USC is one of my upset specials that I've got kind of penciled in ahead of time. And I think that could really set the tone for that back half of the schedule where, sure, you're probably going to drop to Utah, but you've got the more explosive offense over Oregon State. I love them there. I I mean, if they lose to Stanford, oh my goodness, I I don't think anybody's going to see that coming. You know, maybe they drop one game to the Arizona schools just because that's kind of a tough a tough back-to-back, right? You play Arizona State uh, and then at Washington. I mean, I'm sorry, at Arizona and then home to play Washington. Like, it's it's just tricky to to navigate some of those some of those games. Eight and four is certainly not out of the realm of possibility, and maybe nine and three. Like I said, if you can find a way to beat an Oregon. Yeah, eight and four would be pretty good. I've again, we got them at seven and five. I think this is the most solidly middle team that exists in the Pac-12. They just feel like they have a really firm ceiling in terms of talent. I mean, kind of like what Trey was breaking down. Their receivers don't really scare you, right? You wish you could take some of the height off of that tackle and maybe add them to the receivers. Um, Maybe some of the weight (laughs) as well. Um, But, you know, you just I don't think that you're really scared of them out talenting some of the better corners, some of the better cover guys on that schedule. Um, And I, you know, I just... I think they're plenty good to go and beat up on the bottom teams. They're going to be a really good squad. They're going to have a lot of good talent, and that air raid is tough to stop. I just I don't see how they get over the Utah, the Oregon. You know, I, I'll let USC be maybe a, a possibility there, but I don't see them beating USC either. Uh, at Wisconsin is brutal. So I, I just I didn't have enough confidence in them. I think they'll be a much improved team. I just don't think it shows up in the record. I just I think it's going to be a year where, kind of like what Trey was saying, if they don't pull Utah, if they don't pull USC, I think you could be talking about a team that gets up to nine wins or, or maybe even 10 if they let something fall the right way. I just I think this will be one of those teams that you say, this will get you some attention, this will help you in recruiting, and it'll help kind of build the program upwards. Yeah, you trade schedules with Washington. I'm just kind of penciling out, looking at Washington's schedule. I think they're a 10-win team. Like, yeah. I legitimately I'm totally think by that. If, if you swapped out um, if you swapped out USC and Utah for um, UCLA and Colorado, probably a 10-win team. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. Tell you what, I think, I think the Pac-12 North intrigues me more than more than the south and i'll kind of leave maybe most of that for our next episode so we don't get sucked into a a discussion there we're at an hour 45 already but um i love how open the north is and how look it's really looking for that second team if if oregon doesn't just solidify that top spot they are looking for the next front runner and so is washington or washington state the team that can can jump up and take that what do the beavers do I think there's some really interesting storylines going into into 2022 for sure. Um, but uh, fellas, great job as always. A ton of fun researching this Pac-12 North preview done and dusted. As I mentioned, we'll do the South 
coming up. Uh, that'll be Thursday mornings. Episode. And the South is going to be, I think, our most controversial episode we've done so far. <laughs> it's it's gonna get it's gonna get spicy just because all attention is on USC, and I think the majority of us at least think that it should be should be elsewhere. But uh, so make sure you don't miss Thursday's episode. That'll be a lot of fun. As always, head over to Three Tech Pod on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with us. All of our latest news. We we tweet a lot of like recruiting things and um, you know other news. Right now, it's it's mostly recruiting just because we're still. Uh, getting towards the end of talking season, but uh, guys, kickoff, it's like less than four weeks away now. Um, we are less than a month from being in El Paso for UNT UTEP. I'm so excited. I, I know you guys are as well. Uh, and we're excited to take you guys on that journey with us as well. So make sure you follow us on social media so you don't miss it. For Trey Reeves and Garrett Turney, I'm Mitch Mason. Until next time, so long, everybody. Oh!